Thanks for tuning in. I'm Michael Watson, and this is the Influence Watch podcast. In this episode, we bring the story of the United Auto Workers' presidential cabin, allegedly built with non-union labor, full circle, dig into the history of left-wing movements like Students for a Democratic Society, and debunk some reform-conservative errors concerning worker centers and other so-called alt-labor organizations. In episode 48 of this podcast, we noted with amusement a bit of labor movement hypocrisy. The Detroit News had reported that the United Auto Workers was building its retired president, Dennis Williams, a cabin at the UAW's Black Lake Resort and Conference Center using some non-union labor. This week, the news reports the union is putting the cabin up for sale. Of course, the union isn't putting the cabin up for sale to atone for violating principles of union solidarity. The news reports that interim UAW president Rory Gamble ordered the sale as part of a package of financial governance reforms, moved, at least in part, in the hope of avoiding a federal supervision order. Williams and his successor, Gary Jones, have both seen their houses raided by federal agents, investigating wide-ranging corruption in the union and in union management training centers. Already, a number of union officials and some management representatives have gone to jail. The Detroit News reports that the feds have been investigating whether Detroit automakers contributed indirectly to the cabin's construction, in violation of labor laws. For decades, federal law has prohibited employers from providing things of value—money, trinkets, and other perks—to labor union officials. The reason? To prevent the appearance of de facto bribes being paid to union officers in exchange for labor peace, union speak for refraining from striking. For an idea of how these kind of shenanigans used to work in the old days of classical union corruption, consider Nathan Shefferman, a mid-20th century labor management consultant who would feature in the investigations by the Senate Rackets Committee, whose investigations would lead to the passage of the Labor Management Reporting and Disclosure Act of 1959. Investigative journalist James Neff, an author of two books on the organized crime-era Teamsters, described Shefferman as a fixer, a middleman between companies and union leaders willing to sell out. Investigators at the Rackets Committee discovered that Dave Beck, then-president of the Teamsters, was using Shefferman as a cutout to embezzle member dues money. Shefferman was also consulting for companies in negotiation with the Teamsters Union. Neff argued that Shefferman could persuade friendly union officials, for a price, to agree to a substandard contract identifying the then-massive Sears Roebucking Company as one of Shefferman's management-side clients. For his part, UAW former President Dennis Williams claims, quote, there's just no truth to the allegation that the terms of the collective bargaining agreement between the UAW and Fiat Chrysler, where corruption was first identified, were compromised. One wonders if UAW members or federal investigators will agree when all is said and done. Last week was the 30th anniversary of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and each passing year places the often lethal consequences of state socialism in Central and Eastern Europe further from living memory and into the mists of history. It is probably not entirely a coincidence that the first member of the U.S. House of Representatives elected after the first openings of the Iron Curtain on the Hungarian-Austrian border in early 1989 is a prominent socialist. Influence Watch has begun publishing a series of profiles on the history of the Cold War-era radical left and its influence on today's political life. This week, we feature Students for a Democratic Society. Students for a Democratic Society, better known as SDS, was a radical left student organization that existed throughout the 1960s, often credited as a driving force behind the New Left, the socially libertine, economically radical, and often trust fund to middle class movement that in large part eclipsed the industrial working class-based labor unionism as a driving force on the political left. SDS published the Port Huron Statement, the manifesto that came to define the new left. Even at the time the statement was adopted, SDS was breaking with its one-time patron, the League for Industrial Democracy, by collaborating with communist elements. 
Well, the organization started out in the mainstream left, organizing demonstrations in favor of civil rights legislation and against the Vietnam War, SDS was soon taken over by the radical left, with both Marxist-Leninist and Maoist factions battling for control of the group. By the late 1960s, SDS was open to the Maoist Progressive Labor Party, which became one of the most powerful factions in the organization. In response to Maoist infiltration, the Communist Party USA, aligned with the Soviet Union, which since the late 1960s Sino-Soviet split became a rival of Mao Zedong's China, ordered its Dubois clubs to infiltrate SDS. And while SDS's opposition to the Vietnam War won it converts, radical internal politics, struggling finances, and increasing militancy in its demonstrations ultimately weakened the organization. Despite a rise in interest following the 1968 DNC riots, in which SDS leaders were implicated, the Maoist progressive labor factions bid for control, and resistance by the revolutionary youth movement too, better known as the Weathermen, collapsed the organization. By the early 1970s, SDS had all but ceased to exist. The Weathermen faction, led by Bernadine Dorn, Bill Ayers, Mark Rudd, and others, evolved into the Weather Underground, an extremist group which claimed credit for a number of bombing attempts throughout the 1970s. And despite SDS's radicalism, a number of its leaders had important careers in American political life. Tom Hayden, author of the Port Huron Statement, was a California state legislator from 1982 until 2000, whereas former SDS Vice President Paul Booth became a leader in the AFSCME Government Worker Union and was credited with helping oust the old-line Cold Warrior leadership of the AFL-CIO in 1995, further ensconcing the far-left labor alliance. Even some of the extremists became prominent. Weatherman co-founders Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn became university professors, and Kathy Boudin, who did time for her involvement in a Brinks Armored Car robbery, became a Columbia University adjunct professor after receiving parole. Her son was recently elected district attorney for the city of San Francisco, on a radical left platform. And in our final item, the old Moscow rules say the first time is happenstance, the second time is coincidence, and the third time is enemy action. When the issue is right-leaning intellectuals endorsing big labor, whether by ignorance or naivety, we've reached that third time, now that Eli Lehrer, a scholar with the R Street Institute, a center-right policy shop involved in the carbon tax echo-right, has written in favor of so-called alt-labor worker centers. In a spirit of fraternal correction, let us educate. First, non-traditional labor organizations should not include an old-fashioned labor union, like the United Farm Workers. California agricultural labor law institutes a more restrictive collective bargaining regime than federal labor law does on normal private sector workplaces, increasing the UFW's coercive power. In one case, it took employees five years of public protest and litigation just to get their votes to leave the union counted. This is not, contra an organization that does not coerce workers. For good measure, the other organizations that Lara mentions as targets for outreach from the Trump administration are institutionally tied to left progressivism, whether through labor unions like the UAW or major foundations like the MacArthur Foundation. And as for backing worker centers as one weird trick to divide institutional organized labor, it won't. Institutional organized labor controls a number of worker centers. The AFL-CIO has an in-house worker center known as Working America, which it uses to organize non-union workers. Further, a number of worker centers work closely with labor unions on political advocacy for government wage and employment mandates and on union organizing. The SCIU's Fast Food Forward campaign, as part of the Fight for 15, is a clear example of this. It's one thing to look for alternatives to the traditional collective bargaining model of worker representation. But if the goal is to replace big labor with a new labor, worker centers aren't going to be that model. 
That's our show for this week. If you're listening to this on YouTube, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. We'll see you next week.